Welcome to the Thinking Christian Podcast, your weekly guide to solid Christian thinking on culture, science, faith, and Christian confidence, hosted by Tom Gilson. Hello, I'm Tom Gilson, and today on the Thinking Christian Podcast, we will hear a replay of a fascinating conversation I had on Thursday, May 6th with Reverend Brandon Robertson, who identifies as a gay progressive Christian and whom I met through work that I did an article on him, actually, on the stream at stream.org. We decided to have a continuing conversation. We held the conversation on YouTube on May 6th, and here I present for you the audio of that conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Hope it's enlightening. All right. I want to welcome you here who are watching and listening. I'm Tom Gilson. I'm a senior editor with The Stream at stream.org. We are a Christian website giving a, a Christian perspective on current events. We come from a conservative perspective. I'm also the author of several books, including most recently a book called Too Good to Be False, How Jesus Incomparable Character Reveals His Reality. A guest here is Reverend Brandon Robertson, and I'm going to give him a, a good long time to introduce himself. We met each other online after I saw some uh, a video that he had done at a church, uh, was it Eastlake, and responded to that in an article on the stream. Before that, I tried to reach him, but apparently not successfully, so he contacted me by Twitter. We got talking. We've had a very I think, enjoyable, cordial email lead up to this conversation. So I've been looking forward to it, and I think Brandon has too. We come from very different perspectives, however. We both identify as Christians. We both would certainly speak a very strong love and worship for Jesus Christ, but from a different perspective. What I want to do here is give Brandon a chance to introduce himself, because for one thing, he started from a perspective very similar. Actually, I've read your your spiritual journey autobiography, Brandon, no bad. There are differences in where you started from than where I am now. But I'll let you tell the story. Why don't you introduce yourself, please? Well, hello, everyone. Yeah, no, it's so good to be here. My name is Reverend Brandon Robertson. Um, I'm a gay Christian pastor, author, and theologian. I served as the lead pastor of a church in San Diego until this January. And now I'm here in Washington, D.C., where I'm working both as um, a pastor of a digital community that we call Metanoia and uh, at the intersection of faith and advocacy here um, on a number of issues. Right now I'm working, for instance, uh, in Pennsylvania to help organize uh, faith leaders in support of the Equality Act. Um, but as Tom mentioned earlier, my journey has taken me from fundamentalism to evangelicalism to today what is called progressive Christianity. I don't identify with a denomination necessarily, although there are plenty of denominations that I think uh, align with where I'm at theologically and socially. Um, but really in the past year over COVID, I've had this very um, fortunate opportunity thousands of folks around the world through platforms like TikTok and other platforms and really form a uh, community of progressive Christians. Um, and so like every Thursday evening after this call uh, at 8 p.m., I have a group of uh, people who meet on a Bible study where we have um, 
almost 250 people registered to attend and we walked through the Bible from a progressive inclusive lens. And that's really my passion is to reach out to those who have been hurt by the church, who have been taught a version of Christianity that I don't think represents how I've come to understand Jesus and make space for them um, in the church once again in a way healthy and healing for them. So I know we have uh, differing points of um, agreement and disagreement and our theologies are probably very, very different, but um, in many ways doing similar different uh, audiences. So, Yeah, and with different perhaps end goals in mind along the way. Uh, we, uh, as I mentioned in the part that didn't live stream so much that we met each other as I responded to a uh, sermon that you gave, Brandon, on at Eastlake Church. Uh, some interesting points of disagreement there, some questions and so on. You started out in something that I, I would call fundamentalist Christianity. Is that term you would describe it as? Yeah, initially the church uh, I went to and got saved in was an independent, mm -hmm. fundamental, Bible-believing Baptist church. So, mm -hmm. And King James only. Yeah, King James only. Yeah. King James only, yes. And then uh, your journey took you to Moody Bible College. Would you like to tell anything about that part of it? Yeah, so in between the fundamentalist part, um, after at about the age 16, after I got saved at 12 in the fundamentalist church, I ended up um, in an evangelical megachurch, more mainstream Willow Creek Association Church. And the pastor there, who became my mentor, um, had graduated from the Moody Bible Institute. And so it became clear that uh, because I was following in his footsteps and under his guidance, um, that I should probably go to Moody. And I ended up going off to Bible college in 2010. And over the course of my four years at Moody, I really had what became the most monumental shift in my faith. Um, I always say Moody is an incredible school because of the location, because it's in downtown Chicago, but that's, so I think probably the worst thing they can do for the kind of school that they are, because what I would do was hear conservative theology in the classroom, and then I would walk out into the streets of Chicago, and my theology was confronted with reality, and so many of the realities and things that my theology was telling me about other people wasn't adding up. And so uh, during Moody, I went to a Roman Catholic church to visit with some friends, and remember sitting through a mass and hearing the priest really beautifully recite the gospel. And Moody had taught me that Catholics were antichrist, that they were part of the great horror of uh, Babylon in the book of Revelation, that this was an evil group of false Christians. And yet the priest and this parish were proclaiming the same gospel that I proclaimed and that I understood. And I had so many experiences like that, that just began to help me begin asking questions and be a little suspicious of my narrow view of Christianity. And the long story short is, as I explored more, read more, um, as I interviewed prominent theologians outside of Moody and of theology for a radio show that I had at the time, my faith continued to be challenged. And I found myself growing more uh, open to new ideas that I hadn't ever been able to consider and as that was happening, Moody responded with a lot of fear. Um, and the administration tried to kick me out six times over four years. Um, 
not for anything fun, uh, but just because I was uh, blogging and interviewing these people that they considered false teachers, which, by the way, were just people like Tim Keller and people like N.T. Rice and Tony Capolo was probably about as far left as I got. So, okay. yeah. All right. And, you know, I, I noticed in your book is that many interesting things. By the way, I loved your book up till about page 90. And then that's when I started thinking, oh, my goodness, what is he saying here? The part I didn't love before that was the part where you described some very negative experiences with really legalistic Christianity. I reject that, too. I think the number one heresy in Christian history, the, our favorite heresy as Christians, has been legalism. And so we have all kinds of ways of practicing and expressing that, and you experienced some of that early on. But during your discussion of how you began to shift your viewpoint, one of the things you've said is that you uh, you were talking with Muslims and you came to understand. I don't know if this was a an enduring understanding or just something that was a challenge at the time. Understand that they worship the same God as Christians, and yeah. and that caught my eye. Uh, where do you stand on that right now? I'm curious. Yeah, I would absolutely um, still stand by that. I think that came both from experience uh, traveling okay. with Moody um, to Turkish Cyprus and being in the midst of uh, Muslim culture, but mm -hmm. also um, it was a particular conversation I had with Miroslav Wolf, who wrote a book a few years ago that became yeah. a, a controversy called Allah, A Christian Response, where he makes the case that Muslims and Christians okay. worship the same God. So Then the, that leads, obviously, in my mind at least, to the really key core question now, there's lots of core questions, and there's lots of things we're not going to cover here today. But the one that I love, especially because I've been studying so intently in his life, is the the Muslims certainly have a different view of Jesus than Christians have. And it's different in important ways. Not so important what they believe, though, right now. Who do you think Jesus is and was? How would you identify him? Yeah, I would say um, I have a pretty traditional uh, liberal view of who Jesus is. Okay, I think Jesus okay. is can be said to be the incarnation of God. I think you can say Jesus is God in the flesh. I think you can say Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, and okay. biblically um, and historically, there is a differentiation between what John Dominic Crossan would call the Christ of history and what, um, or the Jesus of history and what the Christ of um, okay, okay. And so I think there is some difference. I think the Gospels don't try to give us necessarily the Christ of history. That's not what they were written in. They were intended to build up the faith of the early church. And so in the Gospel accounts, we have um, some liberties that are taken by the authors of the Gospel mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. because they had an agenda. They had a desire to convince the early Christians and new converts that Jesus was, in fact, the Jewish Messiah. Now, <laughs> we can, this is a long conversation we get into, but oh my goodness, I yes, think yes. <laughs> a large body of scholars today would say it's very hard to uh, make a case that Jesus himself thought of himself as equal to God in every way. Um, and I think those are interesting I think at the end of the day. Um, 
as far as salvifically goes, I think as long as we can profess that Jesus is the Lord of our life, that we're going to try to follow in his way, that's what I'm trying to lead people to do. And all of the big mysterious questions yeah, about yeah. Uh, how divinity works out and whether we adhere to the Council of Chalcedon or not, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I think that's secondary, but... Okay. Yeah, we certainly come out in a different place there because, and my goodness is I have studied Jesus in, uh, I'm, I am resetting something that fell down here. I'm sorry, I'm looking away. <clears throat> but as I have studied Jesus, I have been stunned by his magnificence. I have been overwhelmed by his uniqueness. I have been, um, the, the more I look at a story, the more I look at the, the, as a story, look at it as a story, and I think of where did this character come from? Who invented him if he was an invention? Who, who invented any part of him if any part of Jesus' story was an invention? The, uh, the most prominent answer to that question would be something like, um, well, Bart Ehrman talks about it you know, in terms of a telephone game. Others will talk about it in terms of cognitive dissonance reduction. I am really having trouble with my earpiece here. I am so sorry. Others will talk about it in terms of um, um, just just um, proselytization going on around the Roman Empire into Asia Minor and so forth. And what I find in Jesus is that he is, among other things, the only character in all of literature, much less all of history, who was both supremely powerful, and I mean supremely, as a character, he is described as the creator, and supremely other-centered and giving. And that's universal across the Gospels, that there is no point in the Gospels where we see him using his extraordinary powers for his own benefit. There was no one else like that. And for that and so many other things, uh, that's just one. Not only do I, I find him worthy of admiration, but of worship. And, and the, uh, the, the claims to his deity are supported by that and a lot of other things. That's just, you know, my, my side, here's, here's where this, you can respond to that or, to my next question, because this again was something that I caught in what I read and what I heard from you, was the question of what does it mean to follow Jesus? Because I think what I read in your book was that your take on following Jesus would look something like, or your 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 expression, your opinion of it, would look something like it. To follow Jesus is to do as Jesus did. I'm reading from your book. Jesus Holiness was rooted in his willingness to embrace his God-given identity. That's one of the things that made him different, and therefore, I think, different in, the, in that sense. You were probably referring back to holiness, that holiness is a matter of being separate. And you can correct me on that. Um, and you say not excluding the obvious fact that he is God incarnate. So his holiness is rooted in his willingness to embrace his God-given identity, and then what would it look for you and me if we began to lean into God's call for us to be holy? Uh, you say that essentially that it's we need to lean into who we are. Is that is that a, a good statement of your position? Yeah, I don't think I would reduce it to that. I think that's uh, one chapter. 
of discipleship. Okay. Okay. I think more importantly, um, the entirety of uh, what I try to call people to is to actually follow the red letters of Jesus. And okay. I think okay. my experience of the church and even conservative environments was that I was taught, I think, are uh, Jesus lifted the bar so high just to show us that we could never live up to it, and therefore we just need to rely on Jesus's grace because we're always going to fall short of the Beatitudes, for instance, or the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, okay. I don't think that's uh, the gospel at all. I think Jesus really? gave really? us standards that he fully expects us to live into and mm -hmm. says as much. Uh, he says he's giving us the Spirit, and the Spirit will enable us to do even greater things than he has done. Um, and so I think is to quite literally follow the teachings of Jesus. And there's a differentiation between that. Following Jesus versus being a Christian are two different mm -hmm. things in my view. Okay, uh, okay. To be a Christian is to belong to the religion that formed arguably uh, in its official form hundreds of years after Jesus. Whereas following Jesus is about being a disciple and taking his actual example that we have recorded in the Gospels and trying to make it a reality in our Okay, and his actual example is rather wide-ranging. It, it's everything from prayer to, um, to love to giving to um, he, he talks about marriage. The rest, he, he uses the word repentance. And John the Baptist used it. The word is used throughout the New Testament in a specific way. And it's a repentance from sin, and, and that's the gospel of the kingdom. You say, seek first the kingdom. What is that kingdom? It is the ultimate state of reality where all of us are freed to be ourselves, to live out our dreams. And, and I'm curious how that ties together with repentance and with kingdom of God, in your opinion. Well, I would disagree. Um, that the word repentance actually appears in the mouth of Jesus or in the New Testament. Um, as you know, we'll have probably a conversation okay. about the word metanoia in Greek, which right. almost universally, if you look at how the early, uh, how most even conservative scholars have commented on metanoia as repentance, um, the wide body of scholarship says that's an inaccurate and sad translation. Uh, literally, I was looking today, so, uh, scholars have said, it's a set, okay, the saddest okay. mistranslation in Christian history because the word metanoia doesn't mean be sorry, change one's mind. It means, yes, to change directions to if you've been walking in one path, Jesus said, that leads towards destruction, begin walking in another path. But I think mm -hmm. uh, by making it repentance, we've turned it into a religious act of piety and contrition. And that's not what God is looking for. God is looking for us not just to say sorry because we've done something wrong, but actually mm -hmm. to change our minds about the way we're living, to change our perspective, and to live into the kingdom of God. Said, looks like liberty to the captive and recovery of sight to the blind and proclaiming the year of God's favor for everyone. Um, mm -hmm. The kingdom of God, as I say all the time, is the world as God intended it to be. And that's what happens when we live a life of metanoia, of this word that's been mistranslated as repentance. It's the constant changing and turning of ourselves and the way we're thinking towards the way of Jesus, which I believe is the way that leads unto life. And he was right. Few find it. 
you in in Paul's letter he talks about a repentance, a, a sorrow that leads to repentance. That's in Second Corinthians seven nine. In uh, in John the Baptist ministry, there is this sense of this is a painful change, perhaps. Uh, uh-huh. Jesus says in Luke nine twenty three that you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Uh, as I read Nomad, I, I, I got this distinct sense that you were trying to explain that becoming more holy became, was was becoming more of your identity. I, I think it even that at some point you say something almost like that. I, I'm not going to be able to find it maybe right away. Well, I think, and, and, well, I'm, and sure I'm not sure how, that, how I don't how, know that, how that fits. I because I think we can't reduce yeah, yeah. identity to sexual identity, which I think I sense the direction um, at the question. Oh, no, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going there at all. That's, I, that's, uh, I, my uh, understanding I'm talking about, about this would be an, a, a conversation that would apply regardless of that. Yeah. Aspect. Well, I use the word identity in Nomad and elsewhere to talk about our true self and our false self. That's another common language that Father Richard Rohr is one of oh, the yeah. people oh, yeah. and also sure. Carl Jung sure. used. Um, mm-hmm. And so our true self is the self that God created in God's image that one might even say is the pre-Edenic self, the self before the the self that we're trying to get to through sanctification. And so I think that there is in the church today, it is really a modern problem, this idea where we are telling people that they need to conform to certain ways of being and conform to certain uh, expectations that are mostly cultural expectations and not scriptural expectations at all. And I also think as a culture, there's a lot of pressure for people to conform to different ways of being that are not healthy or helpful. And so I think part of holiness, part of sanctification is being drawn by God's spirit into the true self, into our sanctified self or our pre-Edenic self, however you want to theologically mm-hmm. put that. But the true self is the self that God desires us to be apart from sin, uh, to completely devoted to Christ, completely following in the way of Jesus. And so that sounds, I don't that sounds very Richard Rohr. Rohr. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And of course, Carl Jung. That sounds very Richard Rohr. It doesn't sound very New Testament to me. It sounds to the, the New Testament is is so much more about being formed in Christ, being complete in Christ, being like Christ. Jesus was uh, he was consistent in saying, "Follow me, follow me, follow me." And when people said, "You know, I want to go, you know, bury my father," he said, "Leave the dead to bury the dead and follow me." And it was a consistent call to become like him, not like ourselves. I agree. Yes, he was, his his uh, his his being was out of reach. Certainly, when I think of being uh, as as powerful as he is, as good as he is, I I could even imagine you know coming into a large sum of money. Um, you know, I played the Powerball and I win. Um, neither of those is going to happen just because I don't play the Powerball. But, you know, I suppose I won, you know, a couple hundred million dollars. And 
And I thought, I'm going to be the best person in all of the world. I'm going to give it all away. None of it for myself. I'm not going to use any of this extraordinary new economic power for my own benefit. And, and I think, yeah, I would do that. But if, uh, if the brakes needed fixing, I might do that too. When I look at Jesus, he was... My goodness, he was hungry at the end of 40 days. And Satan came to him and said, you could turn these stones into bread. And he said, and Satan was right. Jesus could have done that. But he said, no, uh, man shall not live by bread alone. And throughout his ministry, all the way to the cross, it was all for others. And I think of that's the that's the life that I'm to follow. It's a life that's only reachable by grace. This is one point where you and I would certainly disagree because I know that I can't reach it. I know that there's a standard. I know that God is holy, meaning not just that he's different, but that he is very, very, very good. I can't attain to that. But by his grace, God can give me the forgiveness, the freedom, the spirit, as you mentioned, and, and, and bring me into that state where I can attain to at least his love and his forgiveness and walk in grace. That's, but that's yeah, yeah. So, but what's the point of the grace? Because it sounds like what you're saying is okay, okay. on your own strings, you can't reach that standard. But by grace, you can reach that standard. By grace, by grace God, God can, can take, take me there. there. Yes. That's, that's okay. the point. That is, that is the point. I think point. we would yeah. agree. Yeah. I think. Okay. I think everything Jesus said that we could do, every command he gave, is well within our ability to do through the transforming power of the Spirit of God, by the power of the grace of God. And I think the other distinction that I, I want to make of something that you said a little I agree that the New Testament calls us to conformity with Christ, and I think I make that pretty clear in my writing as well, that Christ is, God is the true self of the world. Like Christ is the hope of glory that's within us. Christ is the God in, live we, uh, in whom we live and move and have our being. And so I think the problem probably what's happening is that we're using two sets of language to talk about very similar things. And I know okay. you probably don't want to see it as similar, but I think, um, the language that I'm using is slightly different, but we're both saying by leaning into our true selves, you're actually leaning into the Christ in you, the hope of glory. You're leaning into the image of Jesus. That's the only image we're called to conform to. Be not conformed can, to the images of this world, but to the image of Christ. That's can, what I'm can trying to do. Can a person do that. that without a saving work of grace? It, 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 is, is, no. it the, is it the goal of every person to begin um, you know, from the moment of, you know, whatever, age of accountability and say, I'm going to lean into myself so that I lean into Christ. Is that the way you do, you lean into Christ? It's one, see, it, it's not reducible. Uh, you can't, it's not just that chapter. Part of it, part of sanctification is embracing all that God made you to be, which would, in other context, people would say that would be living into your manhood as God intended your manhood to be and living okay, into okay. whatever other identities you have. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, 
Yeah. And you say, uh, for me to become more like Brandon is to become more like God, because that is in whose image I have been created. Uh, then uh, what about sin? Yeah. What about, what about, what about sin? sin? <laughs> that, what's that? What's that? What about sin? Yeah. Well, it, the sin is a, um, shall we say, not a minor theme. <laughs> it's not a minor theme. What about faith? Uh, what about saving faith and, and so on? Sin is not a minor theme. What what do we do to overcome the sin problem in each of us? And, uh, and uh, yeah, yeah. It's a matter of grace and works or faith. It's a matter of both of them. James clearly makes uh, states in his writing. It's okay. sin okay. is something God ultimately has to deal with. I'm a universalist. There's uh, no surprise there, but I believe that the work of Christ applies to absolutely everyone and that through the power of the regenerating work of Christ, sin can be overcome and will be overcome for absolutely everyone. For in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. And so in uh, John chapter 5, when he speaks of there will be a resurrection, and he's in... Uh, As the Father has life in himself, I'm reading in John chapter 5, verse 26. He has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. I, I, I was in a Bible study once. It was written by a somewhat progressive pastor, not necessarily as um, progressive as some. But it was on the Apostles' Creed, and he left out the part where he says Jesus will come to judge. And I wonder, why did he leave that out? And then it goes on, he, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. It's clear, clear distinction there. And there is... Uh, yeah, those he says, he who is not with me is against me. There is a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. There is a kingdom of God. There is a kingdom of the um, of darkness again. There is how how does how does that all fit together in your progressive Christian? Well, I would say in my biblical worldview uh, that all fits together in a notion of. One, you have to understand the Jewish context in which Jesus is talking about. The Jewish people in the first and second centuries began to adopt a theology that Jesus himself pr promotes, which believed in resurrection from the dead, but it wasn't a resurrection for just the righteous. It was a resurrection for everyone. Throughout the New Testament in particular, you do see what I would argue are potentially uh, on the surface, competing views. Um, there is a constant wrestling throughout the New Testament uh, between this punitive judgment, that is the desire of an oppressed people who want to see their enemies uh, defeated, and there is the actual teaching of Jesus. And again, you're quoting from the book of John. People uh, who are conservatives who haven't done the work here, I think, roll their eyes things like what I'm about to say, but the fact is, John is the oldest gospel. John represents a theological development, and most um, 
Jesus scholars would say that John represents a lot of teachings that don't actually originate from the mouth of Jesus. So when yeah, I look at the teachings and Dr. Lydia, Lydia McGrew, McGrew, in her recent book, The Eye of the Beholder, would make it clear that 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 deals with all that, and I think it's very clear that the the book of John is true reportage of the life of Jesus. Uh, you, you say most conservative scholars who haven't done the work, yeah, there are some who have done the work, and would say that we can trust these as the words of God. Uh, you're you're rejecting that, I take that, or at least uh, putting that on the shelf as as uh, maybe who knows. I know no credible scholar that would say that the Gospel of John is not a does not include innovations from the early church, because again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, have teachings of Jesus that are pretty much across the board all in alignment. And when you get John, which again is written some say up to a hundred years after Christ, it's the first time we have some of these really innovative teachings um, about the deity of Christ and about these Christian doctrines that weren't around when Jesus was teaching and that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were about. And so, I mean, oh, even oh, Ben Witherington, who's a very well-known conservative scholar who I sure, rely on sure. greatly, yeah, says, yeah. of course, John is theological innovation. That doesn't undermine it. That doesn't make it less credible. It oh, just sure. simply says maybe Jesus didn't say all of these things. This is how the early church began to portray Jesus. And we get to choose whether we want to believe that or not. Yeah, the, uh, by the way, uh, the, the deity of Jesus is not absent from the synoptics. It, 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 it I is, would argue it is it's not, not absent. clear. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's yeah, not it's absent. Not absent. His, uh, uh, as uh, Rob Bowman and Kavashevsky have put it, his honors, the honors, the attributes, the names, the deeds, the position of God are all attributed to Jesus there. You, do, you never, this is an interesting thing. I have never heard anyone discuss this. You never in any of the four gospels speak of Jesus having, or, or see Jesus described as a person who had faith. Certainly he trusted the father, but there are, to me, the only, uh, and this is a long discussion that I have uh, gone through with many people and recorded in Too Good to Be False. The, the best explanation for that in all four gospels is that Jesus didn't have faith in the Father because God doesn't have faith in God. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a strange thing to say that God would have faith in God. There are many. Uh, so anyway, back to the uh, the words of of John and the and the theological implications. If you want to get give away some of the Gospels, I really suggest you take a good close look at a very recent, very in depth study by Dr. Lydia McGrew called The Eye of the Beholder on the Gospel of John and how it really is true reported. She, she does a, a meticulous job of it. Here's, here's, where I'm, here's something I'm, I'm noticing as we go through this conversation. It's really interesting. It's almost as if you want to tell me that we agree on everything. I don't think you do. I don't think you want to say that, but as I as I raise questions, um, there are you're saying things like, "Yeah, we agree, we agree, we agree." Where would you find points of? Um, oh, well, we don't agree on John, and we don't agree on universalism. We've we've come up with those two. Where would you find points of tension that would be interesting 
differences? The modern, and I'll use this language, I think the modern heresy that separates uh, orthodox historic Christianity versus evangelical Christianity is inerrancy. The doctrine of inerrancy is new. It is only from the 1800s and throughout all of Judaism, literally uh, back to the earliest Jewish mm -hmm. scholars we have, all the way up through the Reformation, there was no understanding that the Bible was an inerrant text, but instead was a text written by humans, broken, flawed, contains broken, flawed human mistakes. And yet, as God does so faithfully, God works through broken and speaks and inspires and leads. And I think evangelicals um, since the 1800s, in response to the Enlightenment, developed a doctrine, solidified a doctrine that said, every jot and tittle of the scripture is historically, factually, scientifically true. And I think that's one, a weight the Bible can't carry, and it doesn't hold up uh, textual criticism and scrutiny. And if your faith is based on inerrancy, it's easy for that faith to fall apart. And if you listen to most of the people that have walked away from evangelical, probably faith altogether, it's because they realize that the things they were told about the Bible being absolutely inherently true are just not true. There's, again, I would say not to overspeak, but no credible scholar outside of evangelicalism, biblical scholars in the Catholic tradition and in the Orthodox tradition and in the Anglican tradition would never, ever, ever purport that inerrancy is the actual doctrine that our faith should be built upon. Um, what, and what, I think- What about uh, authority, uh, yeah, trustworthy and authority, the true trustworthy guide? Um, for, those, for those who would say, okay, it doesn't have to be every jot and tittle. Uh, and I know some good evangelical scholars who would go that distance and would say, okay, there's a, okay, there's a discrepancy there. We'll just let it be a discrepancy but in minor details. I, yeah, I, no, I, I agree with you there. I think fairly um, only minor details. It, it depends on what we're talking about though, because it's again, the way you're looking at the text. So okay, okay. for instance, we generally know that a lot of the stories in the Hebrew Bible greatly exaggerate things. Uh, MTU uh, has even recently written about how it's likely greatly exaggerated the numbers of Jews who are wandering in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, for some well, people... Copan would agree with that. With that. Uh, a very evangelical philosopher would say that it's typical to... If, um, it was within the realm of grammatical historical hermeneutic to say grammatically, historically... Uh, that it would be common for writers of the, of the day to exaggerate numbers. And so that that is within the range of grammatical historical truth, if we understand it with, with good scholarship. Okay. So I want to ask you a question based on that. So if that's okay. true, if we can then say, well, there are spaces in the Bible where things that it says are just not true, it's a grammatical error, perhaps, then the typical line of evangelical argumentation what, from strict inerrantists would be well, some errors, then how can we trust anything that it says? And I wonder how you uh, answer that question. Well, I would say, first of all, that as I've studied the Bible, I have, as, a, as an apologist, mostly with New Testament 
as my specialty. I do not have the scholarly background to to claim this for the Old Testament. Uh, but as, as I've studied the New Testament, there is no reason to see any particular concern about an error. And so uh, we've got great confidence in the true reportage of the Gospels, the Acts. We've got great confidence in the authorship and the truth of the epistles. And, uh, and so the Old Testament is affirmed by Jesus, who ought to have known, being the Son of God, being the Logos, being God in the flesh. And so therefore, I, um, I, based on the New Testament understanding and based on the character, the reality, the person of Christ, I am, uh, I'll let him be my authority for the parts that I have not yet had a chance to study. And so um, I'm okay with that. What happens though that like Jesus in the gospels, he quotes Jewish scriptures that I don't think you probably consider inspired scriptures. Like, I don't think, I think what I'm, the point I would raise is that just because Jesus quoted something doesn't mean that he was taking it as inerrant or with the same kind of authority that evangelicals are speaking about the Bible with. Because again, I would encourage everyone, something that's helped my faith tremendously mm-hmm. is getting out of Christian scholarship and look at Jewish scholarship, ancient and modern, yeah. and see how have Jewish yeah. people always read the Bible. And what you'll find is, I mean, Jewish people don't even have something called biblical theology by and large. That's not how they view the text. It's not meant to primarily be this utterance from God, but it's a collection of stories and myths and commands and prophecies that tell the story of their journey with God. And sure. um, and that doesn't require it to be without error, but still and has still spoken through it and used it um, to inspire and to guide and to convict people for 3,500 years. So like, be, I be just that as it may, be that as it may, Jesus, the, the reportage in the New Testament is trustworthy. The, the, um, the, the, the imprimatur he puts on the Old Testament is still there. I don't know of any. Uh, I'm not even sure what you mean by Jesus quoted Old Testament text that I would not consider canonical. I may have heard you wrong there. There are some apocryphal I don't know what that means. Oh, well, that's fine. Jesus can quote anybody he wants. That's not, that has nothing to do with whether the Old Testament is canon is. Trustworthy. Uh, well, no, uh, but I do yeah, think it's certainly, certainly uh, yeah. <laughs> Jesus considered some things to be scripture that modern evangelicals don't consider to be scripture. Really? Where does it? Where does he quote something and and say that it should be regarded in that way? I, that's news yeah, to well, me. Well, see, actually. so if you're going to yeah. put that caveat, well, then any place that he quotes the Old Testament, he doesn't say this should be regarded as scripture. Sometimes he says, very rarely, he'll say, "You've heard it said in the scriptures." But oftentimes we'll just speak a phrase from say, the old. You've heard it was said, yeah, and um, yeah, he will say, "From the beginning it was not so, but God created the male and female." He will say, "Just as Jonah was in the heart of the fish or the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be." And so there are times when he just draws from the Old Testament, and of course the classic. Uh, passage is Matthew five sixteen, where he says, "Heaven and earth will pass away, but um, 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 
uh, getting this wrong, but you know, not one jot or tittle will pass away. Is that Matthew five sixteen, or it's probably seventeen? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, um, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will by any means pass away until the law is fulfilled. I missed the 16 entirely, 17 and 18. But it's, by the way, one of the things that makes Jesus unique is, um, I I suppose you do a lot of guest preaching. I I do some. One thing I have never done, and I hope you never have, is is go up on stage and and you get introduced, you say your pleasantries to the congregation and you say, uh, do not worry, I'm not here to abolish the Bible. <laughs> Jesus did that. And that the fact that he would do such a thing to me is, is an indication of his uniqueness. They, there must have been some reason that they thought that he was there for that purpose and that there, it would be like the man at the base of the Rocky Mountains with a pickaxe saying, don't worry, I'm not going to chop the whole thing down. Uh, so. <laughs> so I think I, I get where you're going. I think we, yeah. again, I think rooted in a Jewish perspective, again, uh, Judaism has always understood truth to be progressive and their religion to be progressive. And it was always evolving and changing. And we see this really clearly after the second temple is destroyed and Judaism completely reforms itself to right. figure out how to function without a temple. But um, so I think Jesus is in a long line of other rabbis who also said, Here's what you've heard the interpretation of these Old Testament texts to be, and here's a higher or better interpretation. I think, I think Jesus does do that uniquely in some spaces, but I also think it's important to say that Jesus was in a law. He didn't come with something that was out of nowhere, something completely new. There were other rabbis, there were other teachers that had similar theology to what Jesus himself claimed, and in fact, who had already said the entire law and the prophets can be summed up in love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. I think that doesn't diminish Jesus, but historically, it's just factually true that he's in a tradition and other people were saying and doing, teaching-wise, similar things to what he was saying and doing. Has truth progressed since the New Testament? Uh, and and I'm not talking about um, scientific truth. I'm talking about wisdom, uh, interpersonal truth, and especially truth regarding uh, what we know about who God is and how to relate to Him. Yes, obviously scientific truth. That one's too. That one's way too easy. But yes, right. So Jesus said, um, and again, this is a debate Catholics have with uh, Protestants or evangelicals in particular. But Jesus mm-hmm. said, "I'm leaving you, and I will send the Spirit, and the Spirit will continue to lead you into all the truth." And so there's this promise that there was more to be revealed. And we see this throughout from Genesis all the way through Revelation, a gradual revelation of God to to reveal more truth and clearer truth. And we see that in what Jesus did. He quotes the Hebrew Bible and he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, turn the other cheek. He raises the commandment. He makes it more ethical. He says, this is what the Bible says. And here's what God actually wants, which again, is a problem for inerrancy. But, um, But I would say, I mean, just evidently look at the fact that for the last 1500, 1700 years, slavery was endorsed, and you know this argument, slavery was endorsed by Christians, 
But the spirit of God began to work in the hearts of many of the abolitionists and said, even though the scripture doesn't get us to, you should not have slaves, it does point us in the direction that slavery is wrong and the spirit of the text all the way Paul's writings is this gradual better treatment of people that are enslaved or indentured servants. The abolitionist said, based on this ethic, this trajectory, we don't think we can be Christian and own other humans. And so they abolish slavery based on their faith, but not based on any biblical text because the Bible didn't get there. But it was based on biblical text. Right. First the spirit 1, of the text. Uh, First Timothy 1 9 speaks of you, you shall not be man. Uh, Steelers, it's it's very clear about uh, the, the 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 very beginnings of Southern chattel slavery were in kidnapping and stealing persons, which was uh, you know that is the biggest stain on the history of evangelical Western Christianity is, and it was so obviously anti-biblical, but. From the very beginning, if it was anti-biblical. We, why did every preacher support it for seventeen hundred years? Almost, it wasn't I mean, every preacher, yeah. and for not for seventeen hundred, not for seventeen hundred years, the slavery disappeared from Europe under Christian influence. It was reintroduced through Muslim slave traders selling to European slave traders, and and of course we have a stain on our history with some. Um, and, and too many, but some uh, preachers in America and elsewhere teaching. But no, it was not. It, that, it was most preachers in America. And, and it was not, con, uh, no, Mike, no, uh, Brandon, it was not typical of, um, of Europe. It, the, the history of slavery in the world has been that, generally speaking, wherever a culture had the economic means to afford slaves, they did. And we're the only place with, oh, someone gave me one exception once out of Wikipedia. The only place where slavery has ever been abolished was under the influence of biblical teaching. Biblical teaching that has to do with the fact that we are created equally in the image of God, that we are, um, that we are equally sinners, equally forgiven, equally in need of the grace of Christ at the cross, that um, there is neither slave nor free, as Paul says, that his instruction to Philemon to, to and, and, Paul and, also says and in Ephesians to masters. Well, of course, that was um, because... Of course. No, of course it was, and here's why. It's because in that Jesus' mission was not to foment a political and economic revolution, which is what Immediate slave emancipation, emancipation would have been at that time. It, w- it was not his mission. His mission was, uh, first of all, within the heart, and then working outward from there. And so, and so, the fact that when Jesus was done with his work on earth, there were still slaves. The 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 command was to slaves obey your masters, and masters treat your slaves as fellow Christians. His brothers. So it didn't abolish slavery, though. And if the Bible's true, if inerrancy is true, then slaves obey your masters is an enduring command, unless the Spirit of God continues to speak and convict and guide beyond the words of Scripture. This is what William Webb, an evangelical scholar, writes in Slaves, Women, and Homosexual, 
Homosexuals, which is a groundbreaking hermeneutic book, that suggests mm -hmm. this, that if we stop where scripture itself stops ethically, we don't get to our modern understanding of a Christian ethic that values human rights and decency of everyone equally. And well, all these great things. All, that's where it came from. And the, uh, yes, and, the spirit uh, the, and, and the slaves obey your masters, by the way, was not Southern chattel slaves with iron rings around their neck either. Yeah, it doesn't it was, matter. Slavery is slavery. Yeah. But the, um, and uh, there is a, how do I say this? If you are in a bad situation, you know, the slave, what's he, what is the slave going to do? You, this is not about emancipation. This is about instructions to someone who has no choice in the matter. Um, do you get up in the middle of the night and choke your master to death? What do you do? Do you run? In that case, you have no place to go. Or maybe you would uh, tell the slave owner, if you do recall, you, abolish slavery. Well, you, the uh, it was there. It was there in the in the sense of let's it, it, to abolish slavery would also be to remake the economics into a system that at, at that point had never been heard of, and Which so the it early was a, church did. It was they opted out of the economic systems and, and they sold did. everything they had and gave to them. Uh, for a little while in Acts 2. It did not continue. Well, that's the what way. Was, was commanded, I think. There was, was private property very soon after that. This is all very interesting because, you know, we do have these points of disagreement. We have some points of agreement. And um, the, the one that I think I would have the most trouble with is is not inerrancy i think that the um i i do believe in biblical inerrancy but if it turned out that it wasn't the case that the bible was just basically true then i would still be a christian uh, that's not a, a hill from that i die on the um the one that here here's where when I I actually wrote an article on this on the stream a while ago, the one that thing that I wonder most about progressive Christianity is this: it looks an awful lot in progressive Christianity as if God is one of us, as if God is someone who is woke, perhaps God is someone who is in favor of. Um, the the current sexual mores god is someone who is on on the side of um not just on the side of justice which of course he has been since the prophets if not sooner but in the side of justice as carried out in a in a liberal um political manner that there is to me there is this when i look at jesus and when I look at how good he is, he doesn't just impress me. He scares me. The thought of someone being that good, that someone has lived that perfect human life, really does me in. And I fall on my face before him. And I go, you are my God. You are too good. And if it wasn't love that made him that great, I would be scared. I mean, 
this is God. This is the master of the universe. This is the creator. And, and it just seems a little strange that God is becoming more like one of us as the 21st century progresses. I find that unexpected, odd, and not very godlike. Well, see, I think this is the key misunderstanding, I would say, in that view as you articulated it. It's not that God's becoming more like us. It's that we're gaining more insight into truth about who God is. See, this is the difference between a conservative, not even theologically, just politically, worldview-wise, conservative versus progressive. Conservatives tend to root truth and values in a period or a time in the past. Things have been given to us. This is the way things are, and our goal is to make that consistent throughout the rest of history. Progressives believe truth is progress is gradually happening, and we're moving towards something, I would call it the kingdom of God. We're moving towards justice and equity and peace, and I think God has been humanity over the ages and revealing more truth, and Jesus, I agree, as it says in the New Testament, in Hebrews and in Colossians, he is the full and final revelation of what God looks like. And that's the mm -hmm. image of where we are trying to head as humanity. We need to be like Christ. We need to, if we all began and were transformed to live in the way that Jesus lived, our world would transform instantaneously into the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Now, sin is the barrier, of course. And what we see through revelation, not just biblical revelation, but scientific revelation and reason and all other forms of authority that most Christians have affirmed, God continues to open up the possibility of us creating the more just and generous and equal world along, empowered by his spirit. But I mean, St. Teresa of Avila, this is one of my favorite quotes, although it won't mean much to evangelicals. She says, Christ has no body on earth, but ours, no hands or feet on earth, but ours. The idea, when Paul said, we are the body of Christ, I don't think he was talking metaphorically. I think Paul was saying, we are the vehicles through which Christ no, is working to bring Sorry. redemption and healing to the world. And we've seen that gradually happen throughout the ages. Again, the abolition of slavery is just another great point that we agree on this aspect, yeah. that it was people following the biblical paradigm that pointed towards the equality and dignity of humans that said, this is wrong. That's the revelation and the power of the Spirit of God at work. I would say, mm -hmm. disagree, but the LGBT rights movement is a manifestation of the Spirit of God at work, opening our eyes to see that sexual and gender minorities are also equal and deserving of full respect and rights, just like every other human. And I would say that LGBT and other sexual minorities are equal and full, worthy of full respect. And but I could get fired in 26 on that. Right now. And 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 the uh, the rights part of it would be um, the uh, how do I say this the uh, I'm not I don't think it's a good idea at this point in the conversation to dive into the reasons for it and 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 so on but um, I think you can have respect and full humanity without having full expression of one's desires. That's what I would say. But what, what about rights? So clarify that part. Do you think LGBT people deserve equal rights? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Then you support the Equality Act. That's great no, to I hear. No, I don't. No, I don't. 
Yeah, no. It, 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 <laughs> oh, here's here's the funniest one of them all. Um, uh, you you don't support marriage equality, and I do. I guarantee it. <laughs> marriage equality is 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 a is a funny word because marriage equality, if equality itself is the principle, just equality. We need equality. Then, um, does it have a boundary line? Can can we have? Uh, Thruples? Can we have quadruples? Can we have marriage to animals? Can we have marriage of parents and their kids? Is there a line? Yes, yes. or no? That's a, okay, that is a ridiculous slippery slope argument. No, that it is, isn't. No, I'm not yes, going there. Is. That's not. No, you're. No, you don't know the argument yet. I just asked you a question. You haven't well, heard marriage the argument. To animals isn't a good way to compare my marriage to my husband. No, 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 no. It, no, 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 no. But you haven't heard the argument because I'm not doing the slippery slope one here. I know. I'm just asking, is there a boundary line at which marriage is not allowed? Okay. Then you don't believe in marriage equality. You believe, or rather you do, and I do too. You believe in marriage equality up to a certain point. I believe in marriage equality up to a different point. We both believe in marriage equality. We just disagree on the point at which it does and doesn't apply. That's 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 not a slippery slope argument, and so I would say, um, by the way, and this is um, this is my answer to your statement on the Equality Act, more or less. But the do do uh, everybody has the same rights, but the um, the Supreme Court didn't just. Um, open up a new right. It created a new institution when it, it created gay marriage. We gay probably marriage has been happening for thousands of years. We we probably need to reschedule that part of it because in order to go through this part of the discussion, my goodness, have we um, have we carefully avoided that for most of this time? Well, I mean, we're about an hour into no, this you're, and we didn't get there yet. I just want to say but, as a caveat here. No, you're a great conversation yeah. partner. I enjoy yeah, that okay. twists and turns. Yeah, I, I'm liking this, but you know we're not going to be able to do the um, the gay marriage and so on in any kind of proper manner, and and so the um, oh my goodness, see, Monday night I was teaching a men's group at our church. We're done at eight fifteen, and at eight twelve, guy raises his hands and says, "How do we deal with critical race theory?" And I looked at my watch and I said, "It's eight twelve. And <laughs> just there are some things, just something. Okay, it's actually eight thirteen now, according to my clock here uh, and in uh, Eastern time. But can I just make one You just say, statement. wait a minute, we're not going to go there this time. Let's do that another opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. One yeah. clarifying statement, just because I popped open my uh, YouTube screen down here and just see a lot of comments. Okay, I just want to be clear that. Uh, my perspective of God, I believe in sin. I don't believe that God affirms all behaviors and perspectives and just whatever you want to be, you get to okay. choose and however you want to live, you get to. That's not what any sensible progressive Christian believes. We believe mm -hmm. there is right and wrong. There's not sin, there is holiness. Um, but I think the way we get to defining what sin is, I mean, this would be another conversation we should have just on what the Bible says about sexuality, because 
I just simply don't believe the Bible says anything about homosexuality. Um, and and so mm -hmm. if that if my reading is true, grant me that. It's, it's not a prohibition. It's not a matter of being a sinner or not. And so right. it's, it's if your reading point. is true. Sure. Yeah. In yeah. that case. Well, you know what we've, we've accomplished here? Um, we've both convinced each other that the other person is right and we're switching sides. No, I don't. You think converted so. me, Tom. Yeah, that's right, and you converted me. I know that didn't happen. Uh, I think we've laughed a little. We've had a little. One of my objectives, actually, my my key objective here, was to have a good conversation. Um, honestly, I would love to score points. I would love to say, Brandon, you have to yield to that. I. Um. I'm not keeping a scorecard here. Uh, I do believe in treating humans as humans. I do believe that there's a lot to be said in today's world for being able to disagree and smile. I think we have accomplished that. And I've totally buried you with the quality of my arguments. <laughs> no, can I just say this? I will completely concede that if the thing that like for both of us, and this is the, this is the thing that we all just need to realize if people yeah. listening, I just want to, this is my one big point. If we're starting from different places of authority, which is what we're starting with, you believe yeah. yes. that the Bible is an inspired and errant text. I don't. Therefore, mm -hmm. It's going to be impossible in many ways to actually bridge that divide argumentally and like convince one another because the basic premise isn't there. And so I agree with you. I think these conversations to highlight where the disagreements are and to hear uh, yeah. the responses are super important. And this needs to happen more. And I'm always yeah. open to do it. I'm grateful for folks like you who do it without oh. getting angry and feisty and all yeah. that good stuff. And, and you were right about the source of authority. I was thinking again the other night about the, um, you know, this was about atheism. And the idea that you would ask an atheist to accept Christ as his savior. Well, first of all, he's got to understand what the word savior means, then Christ, then sin. And in order to understand sin, you've got to understand God. In order to understand God, you have to rethink your understanding of where the world came from the um, the difficulty there isn't necessarily that one that you know I think atheism is a very very weak uh, materialistic atheism is a very very weak worldview, but realistically, to go into conversation with an atheist and say you've got to really work worldview believe in mine is the wrong way to treat another human being in view of the authority separation. I do believe that there is reason to believe the Bible is our authority because it's a good way to be confident that we are under the authority of God and, and, and because the Bible stands up apologetically, historically, evidentially as well and philosophically and it, and it fits human experience. I believe that. I'm convinced of that. You are not as firm on that. You, you, uh, whatever you would state as your position on that, I don't know but not the same as I would, certainly. Yeah. Uh, my view of the Bible is that it's a living book. It's a document, uh, a library of books that is compiled over thousands of years that tell humanity's 
or a particular group of humanities uh, interactions with and expressions of faith and God. And I think mm -hmm. God speaks through the Jewish tradition in the scriptures, just as God also will be the big heresy of the night. God also speaks through other traditions and has always been speaking. God didn't just decide to speak through one book and one group of people at one time, but speaks in all sorts of ways to all different peoples and I think even the Jewish scriptures affirm that when we talk about natural revelation. But yeah. but yeah, obviously, like our two views of scripture can be no more different than that. And that's going to make it really difficult when you're quoting Bible verses that I might not think are authoritative or correct at all. I have the ability to argue with the Bible um, and you have the only option to obey the Bible. And I think uh, uh, that's... And to, and to show... Not, not just to obey. And by the way, yes. this is a word to my conservative Christian friends. It, it, our job as Christians is not just to quote the Bible. And my goodness, our job is to understand what it says. And then when it comes to explaining to others who are not necessarily in agreement with us, something I have not had time to do here because we were just kind of listening to each other more, uh, but which I have made a key part of my work is to explain not only what it says, but that there are reasons to believe it's true. That's a traditional apologetic approach, but not only reasons to believe it's true, but reasons to believe that it's good that it's true. And when we can pull that together, we have a lot more opportunity to be persuasive to people who would say, I don't like it. I don't agree with it. I don't know if I accept it. We have to go from understanding to defending, explaining its truth, to explaining its goodness in a world that isn't always convinced of it. That's my word, not so much to Brandon, but to conservative Christian friends here. I think that's a great posture for a conservative to take in regards to the Bible. I like that. Yeah. Well, we got to close this somehow sometime. Um, I appreciate the time. This has been good. Um, even though we haven't converted each other and I, maybe we can do it again sometime and we'll see what happens. Schedule another one to talk just about LGBT marriage equality. Oh, you were a lot more studied up on that one than I am. It would be more fun for you than me. I have done some writing. My writing on it is not, you've done the historical biblical. Mine has been more on the why it's good. What God has, uh, taught, as I understand it in the Bible. So we might be doing some of that if we did that. I don't know. We'll see. Well, Maybe. thank you for making this space, seriously. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Have and a thanks good to everybody who's joined us. Have a good oh, yeah. evening. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you for waiting for us while we found ways to make the technology happen, too. We'll see you next time. Have a good night. Bye. That was my conversation with progressive gay Christian pastor Brandon Robertson, held on YouTube on May 6, 2021. I'll be back with more of the usual Heat to Light Thinking Christian podcast programming next week. Until then, I'm Tom Gilson for the Thinking Christian podcast. Thank you for listening. Thinking Christian Podcast is copyright by Thomas Gilson. For more information, visit the Thinking Christian blog at thinkingchristian.net.